Welcome to the podcast for Gateway Baptist Church. You're listening to a message from our Redlands campus. Find us at gatewaybaptist.com.au if you'd like to connect with us as we seek to change lives by following Jesus in our community, our nation, and our world. So we're in this uh, series, Faith at Work. I love it. I love last week, uh, Jason Elsmore. Wow, then he knocked it out of the park with the sermon. Praise God for Jason Elsmore. It was just brilliant. Um, Four people gave their hearts to Jesus last Sunday, which was pretty incredible. Um, and um, if, if you're one of those four, I'm not going to get you to stick your hand up, but my prayer for you is that that seed that was, that was sown in your heart last week would fall on good soil um, and that, uh, that you're experiencing some great stuff with Jesus in this last week and are, and are set for, for a whole life with him. It's fantastic. Um, uh, and, and what really warmed my heart last week is when so many people were down the front asking God to bless their workplace. I mean, that, that is my heart of hearts, that the church, as it scatters, would be equipped and envisioned to be kingdom people where we spend most of our time. And for most of the people in the room, you don't spend anywhere near as much time here as I do. Um, where you spend most of your time is where God wants to use you the most, I believe. And so to see people responding to that last week was fantastic. Anyway, on with the series. We're in James chapter 2. It's been a bit all over the place because of Gateway Online and all that sort of stuff. But if you want to get your, your Bibles ready, it's James chapter 2, starting at verse 14. Before we get there, let me tell you this moment in my uh, leadership that I remember so vividly. I was in Toowoomba, and I think I'd just become senior pastor of Toowoomba Community Baptist Church, and it had only been a few months or so. And I had one of these moments where just, I, I was just overcome with wanting to submit myself to God. And I remember, I remember I was in my office, no one else was in the office, and I was like, I was listening to a worship song or I was reading the scriptures, or something was going on. I don't remember that bit, but what I remember is dropping to my knees on the floor of my office and then ending up on my chest on the floor of the office, not because I was slain in the spirit or anything like that, but just because I was, I was in such a place of submission and God, use me for your purposes here. I was one of those really significant moments, just excited for the future of the church, overwhelmed to the point of tears. I remember crying that day, just so surrendered in that moment to God. So, so prayerful and, and just in that, that whole posture of God, use me, that humble submission. And I got up off the floor and I was, I was buzzing. I was absolutely buzzing. And I got in my car to go home. I needed to drop in home before picking the kids up for school. And I was just on this spiritual high and I literally got around the second corner from the church building and the car in front of me slows to a crawl. Now let me, let, me, let me just explain that one of the hardest places for me to allow Jesus to take control is when I'm behind the wheel of my car. My wife turned to me one day after a little tirade and she says, you, you just really struggle to let Jesus in <laughs> when it comes to driving a car. It was, uh, it was quite a moment. So this car slows right down to a crawl in front of me. And in this moment of spiritual high and, and buzzing with, with the Spirit of God and all that sort of thing, I yell out. I'm in the car and I yell out to him in front of me. What are you doing? What are you slowing down for? And then I start to see why he slowed down. There was a Zarafas van. Toowoomba has Zarafas, a couple of them actually. But there's a, there's a Zarafas van there and all of these black Zarafas spoon are spread across the road. And this van in front of me has slowed down so that this guy can pick them all up. You want to know what next came out of my mouth? If he's dropped his spoons, it's his problem. Just drive over them. Come on, I want to get home. Total spiritual high going on here. And so frustrated this car was slowing down in front of me because I had God's business to get on with. If there was any uh, moment where I, where I thought, 
what had gone on in my office beforehand was real. It was when I heard the voice of God, I believe it was the voice of God say, pull over and help him pick them up. No, don't, ah, uh, because I didn't. <laughs> I kept on driving. Uh, that, was, that was a really clear voice, pull over and help him pick them up. No, I didn't stop. I kept on driving. I got about 200 metres further down the road. There's the voice again. Sam, it's not too late. Turn around. Go back and help him pick them up. No, I didn't, I didn't turn around. One more time. 500 metres down the road. Sam, it's still not too late. You can turn around and help him. I didn't turn around. I got home because we live not far from the church building. I walked in the front door and the guilt hit me like a ton of bricks. I don't know if it was probably a mix of Holy Spirit conviction and self-imposed guilt. I've just had this moment of, of surrender and everything. And then when you speak, I ignore it. Woe is me. <laughs> My, uh, I had, like I said, I'd drop home and then go pick up the kids. And, and, and it's just like God and his sense of humor that when I got to the end of my street to turn left, the Zarafa's van drives past <laughs> What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. Wow. What an opening illustration for our pastor to share when this is the passage that he's preaching on this morning. I'm... Just like you. I'm sure you have stories like that as well. There's been so much uh, trouble with this passage over the years of the church to the point where some church leaders wanted James taken out of Scripture because we're not saved by deeds, we're saved by faith. We're saved by faith. And I, I, wanted to, I, want, to, I want to address this with, with a bit of an illustration before we move forward because I, I, think, I don't think the tension needs to be there. We don't need to get rid of James because James is actually in agreement with so many of the other New Testament writers that genuine faith shows itself in deeds. And so there's a, there's a guy called uh, David Nystrom who wrote, the contrast is not so much for James between faith and deeds, but between dead, useless faith and living faith. Between the false faith and gen, genuine, real faith at work. Let me illustrate it like this. We've got this big eucalyptus tree in our yard. So imagine you are a eucalyptus tree. If you went to the shop and bought a whole bunch of apples, like let's say you, you purchased about 40 apples, and as your eucalyptus tree, you went out and you hung those apples on your eucalyptus tree. You used your clothes pegs and you went and you hung all the apples on the eucalyptus tree and you stood back and went, look at my apple tree. It's fake, right? It's not an apple tree. It's a eucalyptus tree with apples hanging off it. Whereas if you see a genuine apple tree, the apples are just naturally there and you know they're there and you know it's an apple tree. This is what I think James is getting at. You can't take apples and pin them to yourself and say, look at me, I'm an apple tree. Genuine faith, real faith will naturally grow apples and those apples are the good deeds. This is the difference. So I want, to, I want to go through the rest of this passage from verse 14 to 26 and see what James says about this genuine, real, living faith seed and what it produces in our lives, what it looks like, so that, so that we can know um, whether we have this genuine faith seed or not. Because moments like I had when I drove past the Zarafa Spoon, they, 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 they're real moments where you go, hang on a minute, what's going on here? What's really going on here in my heart? The first thing that I reckon we can see from the passage I've just read, let me read it again. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds, can such a faith 
save them. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. The first thing about this genuine faith that grows apples is that faith at work sees. It sees. It sees things. James, I think, here picks apart a really shallow conversation that can sometimes happen in what is for us the Sunday context. So you'll have lots of conversations. You started them before. You'll have more conversations in the foyer afterwards, and they might go something like what James just said. I think the, the added layer in Australia is we don't like being vulnerable. We don't like sharing that we're in need. She'll be right, mate. So all these conversations go on and not, we're not sharing our needs and we're not aware, we're not seeing into the person and seeing their needs. And so we go, oh, well, God bless you. Have a great week. Have a good one. And that sometimes these conversations can reveal a shallowness to our faith. You know, James and Jesus envision a community where People genuinely love and care for each other to the degree that their real needs are being met. And you see this in Acts 2, 42 to 47. This is a community that has grown up because the genuine gospel has been planted in their hearts. And there's people whose needs are being met. People are selling land in order to make sure that the, those who are in their community who don't have enough, have enough. This is the community that James envisioned. So when you have this shallowness going on, oh, God bless you, go and be well-fed and keep warm and everything. James goes, well, where's your genuine faith if that's what's going on? The problem here, and I don't think, it's, I don't think the problem is necessarily just from the way James has worded it or the way that the NIV translated. I think the problem is that this person hears of the need and then doesn't respond. It's that he doesn't even see the need. He doesn't even see it. So there's a person there who is, there's clear evidence that they're needy, this person just goes, oh, how you going? Yeah, good. Oh, well, go and have a great week. God bless you. Keep warm. Keep well fed. On to the next person. James is like, no, genuine faith sees the need. It sees what's going on. That's the first thing I see of this genuine living faith. Faith at work sees the needs of the fellow human, particularly the brother and sister in Christ. And the reality of this is that this is a switch that is always on for the person of real and genuine faith. That's, that's what gives me a little bit of hope with that Zarephus Spoon story is the switch was on and God spoke. <laughs> that gives me a bit of hope. God spoke to me and I just wasn't obedient. James goes on to write in verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I'll show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. This is... James, like, you know that song, Why Do You Build Me Up, Build Me Up Buttercup Just to Let Me Down? That's what I think of with James. Like, he's so, I think I said this a few weeks ago, so pastoral and warm, and then he just goes, bam. Like, you got good theology? You know, even the demons have good theology. It's like, bam, there you go. I've got to say, I love theology. I love theology. I love thinking about the grand narrative of Scripture. I love thinking about how God has interacted with humanity and trying to make it all fit together. I, I, I love reading. I, I moved all of my books from the cupboard with doors on it upstairs onto bookshelves so they're visible so that when you walk into my office, I actually stole a bookshelf from Jess and Ben to move it into my room so I can display more of my books so that when you walk into my office, you go, wow, you're super intelligent. You, you must be really well read. I think someone said it this week, actually. Oh, I love your books on the shelf. They're amazing. Well, yeah, well, I am pretty amazing. So, <laughs> But you know who knows theology better than me? Who knows the narrative of Scripture better than me? Demons from hell. They have a better grasp of it than I do. They know the story. 
and according to James, they, they know it better than, than we do. But, but they're not saved. They're not loving Jesus. They're not in tune with his ways. They're not living in the light. They're bringing darkness. And so James' point here is mental assent only is not real, genuine living faith. You can get up to, onto a pulpit like this and articulate the faith perfectly, but if you walk out the door and continually walk past people in need, you've got to ask yourself, has the genuine faith seed been planted in me? Living faith, faith at work, this is the next thing I see, faith at work acts. It acts. It doesn't just believe. It acts. There's action associated with it. And as, as that Nystrom quote said before, it's not the contrast isn't between faith and deeds. The contrast is between fake faith and genuine faith. And genuine faith sees and then acts. Seeing the need. Real living faith moves to action and it generously gives to see needs met to the degree, like I read before from Acts chapter 2, that people were selling their resources in order to meet the needs of their fellow believers. That's incredible generosity. It wasn't just a little bit in the tray. It was like, we're going to sell this block of land so that the needs can be met in, in my community. James goes on in verse 20, you foolish person, there it is again, whack, you foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. This is the sort of wording that gets James in trouble. But it's, there's no departure here from the rest of the New Testament. There's, there's been such that, that, that uh, debate around the connection between faith and works throughout the history of the church. I remember in Bible college, and if you're here a few weeks ago, you'll know that that's a lie because I don't remember much of Bible college, but I can remember kind of reading and writing assignments about the relationship between faith and work and what comes first and all that sort of stuff. It seems like that tension was there from the beginning. And I reckon there might have been a teaching getting around, and it's probably still prevalent today. I reckon there's a teaching getting around where James is and, and the church in that time that went something like, you know, Abraham was saved because he believed. That's it. So just believe and then live your life how you want. Do whatever you want. Just believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. That's awesome. You got the best of the next life. Live it up in this life as well. Do whatever you want. Have multiple wives. Spend all the money on yourself. Hey, God's blessed you with money. Spend it all on yourself. Enjoy the best the world has to offer because Abraham believed and he was saved, so you believe and you're saved too. James calls this person foolish. Foolish. No, no. The genuine living faith sees and then acts. This is what is true about Abraham. This is how he showed his faith. Even when with Abraham, this was counter to every human instinct, what God told him to do. Take your son up the mountain and kill him. This is one of those stories I wish wasn't in the scripture. In fact, um, you know, I'd, if I was preaching that actual passage, I'd spend more time on it, but just to keep us moving, I'm kind of going to step, step around it. Um, if you want to talk about it afterwards, I'm more than happy to do that. But the point is that what God told Abraham to do was completely counterintuitive. It's completely countercultural. And, and if you know the story, in the, the last minute, God says, Stop. Now that I see your faith in the action that you've taken. So, genuine living faith at work. The thing I want to pull out of this Abraham story is that faith at, at work 
hears. It hears the voice of God. And so Abraham heard the voice of God and didn't rationalize it away, but went, right, if God is saying this, I'm going to do it. Living faith seeks the voice of God with the desire to obey and live in his ways, even if those ways, and they are, often countercultural. It's important here, um, and, and why, why I've said, it kind of got out of order here, like I've, I've gone, faith at work sees, acts, hears, and I want to rearrange it a bit to make it make more sense. Living faith sees, hears, and acts. Living faith sees the need, hears the voice of God, and acts compassionately to see that need alleviated. Let me, let me give you an illustration to see how this all fits together. Um, a few months ago, we, we as a family went to Movie World, and I convinced Matilda, I was, I was kind of wishing that I hadn't convinced her because I started to get really nervous about going on the DC Rivals hypercoaster. It's not just a roller coaster, it's a hypercoaster. Has anyone been on this ride? Yeah, it's full on. Has anyone been to Movie World and said, I'm not going on that? Yeah, a few more hands, okay. I convinced Matilda uh, to come on it with me and, and as we lined up, it took us about half an hour to get from the back of the line to the very front of the roller coaster. We got the front seat, which was crazy. And I was trying to be all brave and say, this is going to be great till then. So I'm going, oh my goodness, what have I done? Well, you know, we could see that it was safe. I mean, we could see that they'd taken every precaution to make sure that no one's going to die on that roller coaster. It's not going to come off the tracks. It's going to all work properly. Everything is timed. Everything is checked. We could hear people on the ride having a great time. There are a few who were spewing, but mostly those were having a great time. And the spew would be cleaned up quickly. I've had all these images coming to my head when you're doing the loop, the loop, but I won't, I won't go there, even though I just did. So many precautions were taken uh, to ensure our safety. You know, we could have, before getting on this ride, we could have, Matilda and I could have done an online course in physics and engineering to understand how roller coasters work so, so that we could see how it all fits together and know for sure that everything is checked to make sure that it works properly. And we could have known it. We could have said to the person, well, actually, you know, this goes here and that angle works here and all that stuff works fine and you'll never come out of your seat because of these physical uh, dynamics going on and all that sort of thing and this, this geometry and, and engineering and all that sort of stuff. You're perfectly safe. We could have articulated it to other people. We could have watched a bunch of YouTube videos. You know, people get their phones out and they film the trip on the roller coaster. We could have watched that like on repeat for three or four days to know every twist and turn precisely that that roller coaster would take. And we could describe it again where you come up and you go, you go slowly up and there's that dick, 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 dick sounds, it's terrifying. And then you come over the edge and, it's all, and, and then you go this way and that way and then you do a loop and all that sort of stuff. We could have told, I could have told you all about that and known everything there was to know about the DC hypercoaster and never actually sit in it and ride it. And this is the connection that James is talking about. Real, genuine faith sees, hears and acts takes all of that trust, takes all of that faith and acts the way of God in the world. And James goes on with this further illustration. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. What I love about what, what James does here, by the way, I don't know if it was intentional or not, I like to think it is, is that James is aware that Abraham's a pretty big deal in the history of faith. So when people hear Abraham, they go, oh, well, it's, it's Abraham. Like he's next level, next level. Like I, I'm, I'm nothing like Abraham. He was, he was a phenomenal leader in the history of God's relationship with humanity. I don't, I don't compare me to Abraham. 
So James then jumps right over to Rahab the prostitute. Like, I think, I think if there's a scale, if, if, if there's a spectrum of people in the Bible, you've got Abraham right up, like, take Jesus out for a sec, never take Jesus out, but you know what I'm saying. Abraham's over here at, at this left end of godly, uh, faith-filled, awesome people. Prostitutes would be somewhere down this end, right? Uh, that's probably true today even. So James goes, okay, look at Abraham as an example of real, genuine, living faith, and look at Rahab as an example of real, genuine, living faith. And you'll find yourself somewhere along here, I'm sure. Everyone gets to play. Everyone's involved in the kingdom of God. Everyone is invited to put their faith to work. This covers everybody. I love that. I love what Scripture does. Because if, actually, if you read about Abraham a bit more, you'll know he's not as big as he may be in your mind. He's very relatable. He can be a jerk at times, just like me. And I'm sure he would have honked that van as well, who was reluctant to drive over the Zarephus spoon. When you think of the story of Rahab, and, and you may not know it fully, but Rahab was a prostitute who lived in Jericho and heard about this people that loved and worshipped this God. He, she heard about it. She saw it in action as they were coming closer. She saw it in action as these spies came into Jericho to spy it out before coming in and taking it over, basically. She, she saw and she heard about this God, and then she acts, and she acts in a way that puts her life at great risk. If she had been discovered by the people of Jericho, and she almost was, she would have been killed for sure, her and all her family. Like what's going on in Jericho would be similar to what's going on in Afghanistan at the moment. That's the level of pressure she was under. And that's where I want us to understand where James is going with this, is that faith at work hears, sees, and acts under pressure. Under pressure. Often it's the pressure that can make us not want to do it. Often it's the pressure and the fear is if I do this thing that God, I feel God is telling me to do, I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be made fun of. I'm going to be ridiculed. People are going to think I'm weird. And that's the point at which we tap out. You know, the, the real, genuine, living faith hears, sees, and acts, especially, actually, under pressure. This is what was true for Rahab. This was how her faith played itself out. I mean, and, and I think if, if we really pause for a minute and think about this, the, the pressure that we find ourselves under in our workplace, if you kind of hold it up and then you hold up the pressure that our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan are under at the moment, like I don't, I don't want to say you're not under pressure, but the pressure gauge is more significant over here, right? And if, and if, you, care to, if you care to find out, you'll hear stories even in the last few weeks of what's been going on in Afghanistan with some of our brothers and sisters who are seeing, hearing and acting under immense pressure, immense pressure. And the gospel is bearing brilliant fruit. There's lots of apples being grown. So faith at work hears, sees and acts under pressure. You know, as I read this passage, I thought James is so clear. He's so practical. How do I do a sermon on this um, and keep it, keep it uh, kind of you know, interesting and all that sort of stuff. James just says it. He just says this is, not a, this is not a complex, confusing theology that James is going on with here. Is it really? I could have just read the passage and we could have all gone home. Some of you are thinking, yeah, why didn't you do that? <laughs> it's a basic Christian principle. Genuine living faith at work is faith that hears, sees and acts under pressure. This is, this is not complex. But, but I think the question is, with it not being complex, sometimes we complicate it. Sometimes we do the thing that I did in the car and try to rationalize everything there is about 
these Zarafa spoons that I, I don't, I don't, there's a, there's a perfect justification for me not to do it. And we're the ones who complicate it. I was, I was talking to Brooke about this. She's not here today. She's working in Toowoomba again this morning. And I was telling her about this story. She said, why do you think you didn't pull over? Like, it's not that hard to get up, just pull over and help him pick him up. It's, and I went, that's such a good point. I guess I was scared. And she was like, what are you scared of? You just, yeah, I complicated it. I tried to rationalize and all this sort of stuff. It was just, it's weird what we do. But in this moment, as we're hearing this again, yeah, genuine faith sees, hears, and acts. How do we respond this morning? How do we respond to this today? Well, I want to, I want to tell you, there is a temptation to walk out of here today and pin apples on a eucalyptus tree. There will be a genuine temptation. Because right now you might be feeling, I've got to do better. I've got to be better. I need to get more confident. I need to get more bold. I, I, I. And if you walk out of here with that in your heart, James has failed you and I've failed you. Because what you're going to do is you're going to go and pin apples on a eucalyptus tree. You're going to walk away self-determined to do better, but this, that self-determination to do better is not actually genuine faith either. Self-determination to do better is not the seed that produces the apples. It's pinning apples on a eucalyptus tree. You, you, you can't pin enough apples on your tree to make yourself an apple tree. It'll never happen. You cannot turn up before God as a eucalyptus tree and say, look at my apples, I'm an apple tree. Look at all that I've done. Look at all my religious activity. Look at all the acts of compassion I've done. You know, even our pastor drove past that person with the Zarafa spoons, but I stopped and I helped. Look at my apples, God. That's not genuine living faith. That's self-salvation. You actually need to become a new tree. You need to chop down, someone needs to come and chop down that eucalyptus tree and get rid of all those apples and renovate your heart. It's not just a renovation, it's a knockdown, it's a rebuild. You need to become a new tree. There was this man named Nicodemus who I reckon would have been proud of all the apples that he could show God. He had so many religious achievements going on for him. You could tell if you lived at that time just by the way he dressed that he was pretty important to God. He was someone who would have done acts of compassion. He would have tithed. He would have been a great church leader, a great church member. But I reckon there's something in Nicodemus and there's a lot of fear in Nicodemus because he comes to Jesus in, under the cover of darkness at nighttime. But there's something in him. I think he was fascinated with Jesus because he was aware that his apples weren't enough, that his religious achievements and the good stuff that he'd done weren't quite enough. And he, what he really wanted to be was an apple tree. And Jesus' words to Nick would be his words to us today. You can't save yourself. You need to be reborn or to paraphrase it to fit my illustration. You can never become an apple tree by pinning apples to yourself. You must be replanted. You must be replanted. Coming, coming to Jesus is not to come to him with a long list of your religious achievements and your acts of compassion, wanting him to give you due recognition and for him to go, nice apples. That's not how we come to Jesus. Coming to Jesus is to come knowing that your apples that you've pinned to yourself have actually of no lasting worth. 
coming to Jesus knowing and confessing your inability to, to secure lasting satisfaction for your own soul, that's something that we are incapable of doing as human beings. Coming to Jesus is coming to Him in humility and asking Him to replant you and to give you new life. And maybe this morning you've never done that before. Maybe you're aware in this moment and and whether you've been in church just today or whether you've been in church for five years or 10 years or 50 years, there's an awareness that your, your faith has been about you being a eucalyptus tree and showing off your apples to everyone. You've never actually asked Jesus to replant you and to give you new life, knowing that in order to have this genuine faith, that seed needs to be planted in you and for a new apple tree to grow. And maybe for others, we have been replanted. And I believe this is true for me, despite my failings with the Zarafa spoon. I could tell you a bunch of other stories as well. I could tell you a bunch of stories where it's gone better because of the grace of God. But for those who have been replanted, I think sometimes self-sufficiency and self-salvation can creep back in. And even though we may be an apple tree with a few genuine apples on there, we've, we've taken an apple out of the packet. We've got a peg and we've pinned it on. It's one we want others to see. It's one we want God to see. And actually, those apples just need to fall off again. Because the only apples that are worthwhile are the ones that Jesus makes grow in us. So let me pray. If we could all close our eyes and just bow our heads. If you've never done this before in your life, you've never actually said, Jesus, replant me, give me new life. If there's an exhaustion in you from trying to make things fit, if there's an exhaustion in you of trying to find satisfaction for your soul, there's an exhaustion even in your religious activity and trying to figure it all out for yourself. And you just know like Nicodemus that I I just can't get anywhere with this. I'm going to tell you just that, that same thing that motivated Nicodemus to come to Jesus. You can come to him now. You can come to him now. And I'd love to lead you in a prayer. I'm not even going to get you to raise your hand. I'm just going to get you to pray this prayer in your heart right now. Jesus, I come to you now. I come to you because I'm tired and exhausted of trying to find salvation and satisfaction for my soul. And in this moment, with with what I know of you, and I don't know a whole lot, but I, I feel like I've heard enough to say, Jesus, I come to you in humility and ask you to replant me and give me new life. I come on my knees, not wanting to show off any apples that I think I'm pretty proud of, but to say, Jesus, replant me. Give me the faith seed that is genuine, that grows up to become real, living, genuine faith at work. Thank you, Jesus, that you welcome me. And for those who feel that that self-salvation and self-sufficiency is creeping back in to their walk with Jesus, that maybe there's, it feels like there's a bit of distance between you and Him, and, but, but you're also aware that, you've just, that that continual going through the motions and, and doing the religious stuff is just pinning apples on yourself. That there's a repentance, a prayer of repentance that I'd love to lead you in right now. And again, that that same thing of coming back to Jesus humbly. And Jesus, I can relate. I know that I've got apples on me that didn't grow from my relationship with you, but that I pinned there. And I want those apples just to fall away now. Just get them off me, Jesus. 
replant me. Give me the nutrients. Give me, give me the stuff I need for my roots to go deeper into you. Like that, that Psalm 1, that tree that is by the river that draws out that, from the living water and grows to become strong. Not because it's anything special, but because it's connected to that living water. And Jesus, let me be that kind of apple tree, the fruit that comes from the nutrients in the soil and not from pinning them on myself. Oh God, I want my faith to be genuine. I want it to be living faith. I don't want to walk out of here self-determined. I want to walk out of here full of your love, full of your grace, full of your mercy. And from that place, see, hear, and act. And if it's from that place, then we will do that even when the pressure comes. Thank you, Jesus, that you welcome me, even those who ignore Zarafa's vans who have spilled their spoons all over the road, that your grace, your grace, your grace comes again. We hope you've been blessed by this message. If we can pray for you or you would like to take a further step in your relationship with Jesus, we would love to connect with you. Please head to gatewaybaptist.com.au and click on Get Connected to let us know. 